0: Life good. Never
1: on. Whoa. Hard. Hardly. Come on, friends. Life good. Got real close. Hair high, right? Try and hit two thirds. Have they saved oh, it for I her? It. Yes,
2: they have. Woo! Welcome to Game of Stones, everybody. I am Sean Graham. Scott, physically distancing as always. Hello,
0: Scott. Sean. Hello. it's uh, it, It's been a long time of me sitting in my house. <laughs> I, I, I've i watched over 10 seasons of Law & Order in the past little while. I, I really need something to do other than that. So talking about curling on the podcast is great. Yeah, it
2: gives us something to do. Uh, the live shows have been a lot of fun that we've been doing. Uh, another example of just something
0: to do. Yeah, yeah, it's been a lot of fun uh, for sure.
2: Yeah, so Monday afternoons at 5 Eastern time, we're doing uh, live shows with our friends over at Rocks Across the Pond. Uh, this week we talked about the return to curling and the the possibility of, of how that could look at the, the club level, similar to what we talked about last week with Curling Geek. But today, Scott, we wanted to shift our attention on the return to play to what's going to happen at the elite level. Because we've already seen some cancellations, the Grand Slam events are not going to be played this year, uh, at least the early season ones. They're, they're hoping to get the Players' Championship and the Champions' Cup in April played, but those events are canceled. Shorty Jenkins canceled. A lot of those early season spiels where the elite teams show up have been canceled. So what does that mean for the sport Especially in Canada, where teams need points this year to qualify for those Olympic trials and pre-trials.
0: Yeah, it's one of the things we've been talking about uh, sort of offline as well. Like, It's one thing to talk about how the club is going to work, and I think that is sort of more on the minds of, of our listeners. But on the other hand, what we talk about a lot all year is is sort of the big tour events, how teams are playing, especially going into... Uh, the year where they need to qualify, get qualifying points for the trials and stuff, stuff like you said, uh, it, cancellations like this is, are hugely impactful. Uh, a lot of teams sponsorship packages have already been sold. And now there's four fewer events that are going to be on TV. So, uh, you know, the contracts that teams have with sponsors, how they're going to make that up, w- how logistically our teams going to be able to travel in the fall we have no idea and so we thought we'd you know tap into the mind of somebody more experienced than us
2: yeah for as much as we like to pretend that you know we're elite level curlers scott we're really not i mean i did beat uh Dave Mathers once. <laughs> yes, yes, she did. Uh, congratulations, buddy. <laughs> yeah. um, so, we, uh, we thought we would tap into the expertise, as Scott said, of some of the elite players. Uh, so, very excited that uh, Jill Officer joins us uh, from Winnipeg to discuss the logistics of curling, elite level curling at this point and and where teams are looking in terms of schedules some of the financial ramifications of the cancellations as well as her role as a member of the athletes commission with the world curling federation as the wcf looks at what's going to happen or what could happen with international competitions in the event that teams can't travel or the just logistics of having to quarantine this isn't all about the world curling championship either which we have more time for those, the women's in March, the men's in April. You also have to think about the Pacific Asia Championship and the European Championship as qualifying events for the Worlds, and those take place in the fall. So a lot of logistics and Jill is certainly an expert in this category and uh, very excited that she was able to join us, Scott.
0: Yeah, let's uh, take a listen to what she has to say.
2: So Jill Officer joins us now from Winnipeg. Jill, how are you today?
3: Uh, good yeah enjoying the manitoba summer <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah so how, how's everybody doing out there i know the caseload has been very low recently but uh, how are you and the family doing everyone staying safe
3: yeah yeah we're doing really good here and you know obviously had to make some adjustments uh throughout the school year i have an eight-year-old daughter uh, who was in grade three that i uh, had to start homeschooling but and my husband started working a bit from home and stuff so we had to juggle a few things but all in all, our, me and my extended family are all, all safe and sound and uh, making do. All
2: right, that's great. Uh, great to hear. Uh, so let's let's talk a little bit about what's going to happen in the fall with some of these uh, teams that, uh, you know, one of the things we like to do on the show every year is look at team schedules and where teams are going, what events they're going to play as they, they try to accumulate points. And, you know, as someone who's been part of this sport for as long as you have, what I an mean, typically, year goes into making a schedule, especially this year, going into the trials next December, where you're trying to accumulate points, trying to get yourself in position to get that trial spot. So, so what is that strategy like in a normal year for teams?
3: Well, in a normal year, I think it, it can depend on your uh, your positioning. You know, we we have a couple of teams that already have spots in the Olympic trials, so you know if it was a normal year teams like uh Holman and Epping, they might scale back a bit or they might focus on something different because points aren't uh as necessary i think points there's always a points chase i think teams just naturally have that uh in them um but you know if you, if you're start, if you're scrambling to get more points to make sure that you're in the position to qualify for Canada Cup or uh, to qualify for the trials from the point system, uh, you know, then you, you kind of have to look at, at, you know, where the points are and what makes sense logistically, um, you know, what, and what teams can afford uh, in terms of the money that they have to spend on, on their budget. So uh, there's a whole, a whole range of things that factor into making a, a, a schedule. And, you know, some teams have no problem doing three or four, events in a row and some teams just don't do more than two because it it can be exhausting uh to do that many in a row without having a weekend off and depending on what you're dealing with at home when you come home it could be family it could be work so uh you know there's a whole array of things that that teams look at when they're they're trying to determine a schedule in a normal year
2: and it seems like there has developed now on tour certain events that teams just go to I, I think of you know the stew cells events uh the shorty jenkins is one it almost seems like on tour there's these mini grand slams where you can expect the top teams to go to and, and is that just part of the points chase because you see other teams going there that's where you want to go to
3: i think that's part of it i also think that there's other factors that uh, help events grow to that point um, you know, the, the stew cells and stuff like that, those, those events that are held in Oakville, the Oakville, I, the ice at the Oakville curling club is really good ice. Uh, especially for a curling club, you know, it's, it's different than an arena, but, uh, for curling club ice, it's really good. And I think that that attracts a lot of the top teams as well. Uh, it's a reasonably easy place to get to, um, you know, and then it, it's some of the other little things that happen, um, you know, maybe some, uh, like what restaurants, what type of food places are in the area or how easy it is to have a hotel nearby or, um, you know, maybe what the event provides in terms of food for players, uh, things like that. So those are some of the things that I think attract teams to it and help the events grow. Um, You know, Calgary would maybe be another one. Uh, You know, they've always been really good about uh, having food for the players. Uh, it's an easy spot to get to. Uh, hotel is five minutes from the rink. Uh, you know, things like that, I think, really factor into uh, teams' decisions as well. And, and it helps those events grow, having, having those little things working for those events.
2: What do you think the impact of the Grand Slam cancellation is going to be for teams as they look to set schedules you know i know so many teams look to those for a variety of reasons not the least of which is sponsorship and being able to sell sponsorship because they'll be on tv Uh, but, but what do you think the ripple effect for teams are going to be both in terms of the the finances and the exposure but also just in in trying to set a schedule
3: uh you know what it it is going to be it's going to be a real challenge, I think. Like, And I think teams are, are just starting to adjust to the fact the Slams aren't playing. Uh, it's only been a week or so since that announcement came out. I think the teams are looking at what they can do to satisfy their sponsor contracts. I think that's a big, big priority for most of the teams is to find a way to um, you know, make their, keep their sponsors happy, make their sponsors happy, uh, which means they need to find things To play in. Uh, you know, and fortunately here in in western Canada we are open. Like we can travel province to province with no uh quarantine or isolation requirements. So, you know, maybe we see teams spending more time traveling to those smaller bond spills uh in the West. And that's only if these bond spills can can uh you know go ahead with their own event sponsors and whether the event sponsors can still afford to put the money in and can they afford to open their curling club and have the ice plant on and can they afford like there's just you know there's just really so many logistics to think about um and i know uh, you know i'm on the athlete commission for the world curling federation and uh you know, we've we've had some discussions, uh, you know, about WCF events, and I think it comes down to the same types of things from a local level. Is just when you really start getting into the details of how you could hold these events from a logistical standpoint while following public health regulations, it it becomes a real logistical challenge and almost a logistical nightmare. Uh, you know, it just, and and then again, you're following public health regulations from province to province still as well, which means, you know, an event in BC, maybe they can figure it out, but maybe an event in Saskatchewan, they can't figure it out, because maybe they don't, you know, have the support or the sponsorship. So it's just, it's just so challenging. And, you know, I'm hoping that, some of these smaller events go on and we see the the teams going off to play because i think the players really want to play you know it, it's a sense of normalcy for them to be able to go and um to travel every weekend and play in in events somewhere and to be on the tour so i think the players are gonna find try and find a way to play and do their best to support the local events that uh, are going to be important right now to keep going. Um, you know the slams will come back because there there's money there uh, to be able to put it off for now, but to be able to come back in the future. Some of these smaller events that are played in the in the prairies or in eastern Canada or or elsewhere, you know those are the ones that, you know if the teams can go and support those especially right now. Hopefully it'll help keep those those running. But uh, you know I. <laughs> you know being removed from having to do scheduling and stuff now it's uh, i i don't really envy the teams being in the the position that they are right now to try to sort out what they can do for their sponsors um you know how and and then it also comes down to uh individual teams and individual players and what their comfort levels are with traveling um and whether or not they're prepared to do that and whether or not they're prepared to travel somewhere and then come back to their family like it's it's really complicated and I think at the end of the day I'm I'm hoping that each individual athlete can make a decision that is best for for them and their comfort level.
2: Yeah, that's something that we've talked about. That you know, certainly we have no right as the the public, as the curling public, to know anybody's medical histories uh, or their family's medical histories. But you would have to think, just statistically, with the the, the curling population, the elite level players, that there are people who are going to be uncomfortable for a variety of reasons. And you know, there are a lot of players who have young families, and, and these are factors that you have to think about, especially given the new rules for residency and and. That, that there are players that even if it's an Alberta based team, you could have players across the country who need to travel that way. So, so have you talked to teams? Have you heard from teams who are thinking about the logistics of people in different provinces and whether or not they're going to have to look at spares or playing with three, if there are some of these local events?
3: Well, that's a really, really valid point. And I haven't spoken specifically, you know, I, I I've just heard some things where You know, some people are are thinking, well, they'll they'll find a way to make it work. They'll come, you know, to Western Canada and they'll isolate for 14 days and then, you know, maybe head back home. And, you know, but I don't think that's going to be the case for everybody. I think, you know, other players might have might not be able to afford that time. You know, if you think about having to isolate on both ends, that's that's four weeks. That's a whole month. You know, the only other time that I was ever away for a whole month from my family or from anything for curling was because of the Olympics. Uh, You know, like usually you're kind of coming and going and it's just logistically such a challenge now. So uh, I don't know. Yeah, I think that we could see some spares um, because, you know, the other thing that is to be taken into consideration is that right now all the points are on hold. So, you know, you could you could feel the team. Uh, half of which is spares, and it's not going to affect your points at this at this point. But if those players can come and wear your sponsor jerseys, maybe that is satisfies the sponsors. You're still playing in an event, you're still supporting a local event, and yet you're respecting the individual decisions of your teammates. So, uh, like as soon as you start talking about all this stuff, there's just so many little intricacies and and logistical things that are are just a challenge right from the organization of of certain events or certain things right down to the individual athletes and it's just like there's no there's not going to be a one-size-fits-all uh solution to to it to the whole thing so um you know i know a lot of the teams are talking about how they can you know support uh a tour of some sort or to support the local events uh, you know, particularly in Western Canada and that if other teams want to come and actually do the isolation, obviously that's fine, but it's a, a little easier for Western Canada. So uh, yeah, it's, it's just really crazy to think about all the little intricacies of it all.
2: And in your, for, for you, as, as you mentioned, a member of the athletes commission with the, the WCF this year is so important for the World Curling Federation, because we didn't have world championships in 2020, that the 2021 events are critical for Olympic qualifications. And yet all of the the things that you just talked about, the logistical issues domestically of teams going between provinces is just magnified when we start thinking about international competition and teams having to travel internationally. So what, what are those discussions like? And for the athletes, where is the balance between needing to have these competitions for Olympic qualification versus the public safety measures and just the logistical challenges of being able to travel?
3: Well, well, that's just it. When you look at it from an international standpoint, and and so many countries have different. I mean, I mean, like you said, like you know, we look at provinces and we have different regulations, but you know, we have parts of Canada that are open and parts that are still not. So. Uh, you're right. It gets magnified when you look at it from a global scale, and some countries are just on complete lockdown. Like one of our members of the Athlete Commission uh, lives in Australia, and she like they can't they can't leave their country. I don't even know if they can leave their state. You know, like they're on complete lockdown. So when you think about holding the Pacific Asian Championships, you can't have all the teams actually get there like they they're not allowed to leave their country and so obviously that poses a real challenge and then you have to think well is that fair to still hold the championship when not all the teams are actually allowed to come like if you make the choice not to come if you make the decision not to come maybe based on finances with your member association uh you know that's one that's one thing because it it's it's a choice that you're making right but if, if you want to go to something like the Pacific Asia Championships or the European A's or B's or C's and you are actually not allowed to leave your country or from a logistical standpoint, you have to isolate on both ends and you just can't like teams can't make that work. And, you know, in order to follow government regulations, it just becomes so, so, so complex. And then it's like, well, how do we hold a championship? if if not all teams can participate, is it really fair? Like, is it really fair to still hold that championship and and have it qualify teams for world championships or have it qualify teams for Olympic Games or member associations for Olympic Games, you know? And and it just, you really can't do that. It's just, we're in a situation like we've never seen before and and it's just not fair to... um, have teams not participate because of what's going on in the world right now. And so, you know, when you look at it on the other side, it's like, well, if the, if the events have to be canceled, then then what sort of system can we have that qualifies member associations for the Olympic games? And, and it's just so much is up in the air. There's so many variables because we also don't know if we're going to be able to hold a world championship. So if there's no events from Now for a whole nother year, then you might just have to take the standings as they are for what countries qualify for the Olympic Games or you have a shortened uh, qualification or like there's just it's just mind boggling to even think about it right now. And then, you you know, unfortunately, with curling, we just don't just does not have the money to put into testing like some of the other sports are doing. And I've I've said it before, and I'll say it again, curling, I feel like, is stuck between an amateur sport and a professional sport. And there's not, I don't know if there's any other sports that are in that position, because we don't have the money at the level of these professional sports. But we're, we also have a little more resources and media attention and things like that than some of the amateur sports. So we're kind of in a unique position. And but at the end of the day, we don't have the money to put into testing like these professional sports do. And that will impact things, too.
2: Yeah, I, I, I it's yeah, you're right. It's so hard to think about. I, I like the idea uh, or don't like the idea, at least, uh, sort of the irony of, you know, you can have the a defending Olympic men's champion not be allowed to travel anywhere this year to play. Right. (laughs) Uh, Because of what's going on in the United States right now. And that's really hard to fathom when you think about how important this year is for the qualification. And as athletes uh, and as part of that athlete commission, you know, how much sway do you think the athletes have in discussing these issues with the World Curling Federation? Certainly, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about the athletes relationship with Curling Canada. But on the international scale, how much agency do, do the athletes have in these decisions?
3: You know what? Uh, You know, I've been on the commission now for two years uh, and it's a four year term. Um, We were actually supposed to have commission uh, voting this year because there were some members that were up for re-election. But we postponed it because uh, like we talked to the WCF board about it and thought that it would just make sense to kind of get through all of this and postpone the elections for a year. But um, so having said that, I think I'm still sort of learning some of the intricacies of being part of the commission and how we deal with the WCF. But my experience so far has been really good in terms of uh, the information and feedback that we as the commission give to the WCF board and the WCF staff. They're really, they really listen. And when different rule changes or proposals are presented at their annual Congress every year in September, they always have on there uh, whether or not the athlete commission supports these rule changes. So it's, it's out there and it's aware for people to see whether or not the athletes actually support different motions or different rule changes. So from what I've seen so far, I feel like we have a voice. I do feel like we have a voice. I feel like they listen. Um, And, and they're actually the ones that are sending us things saying, we need your response on this. We need your, your feedback on this. And, I have never felt like we've been left out of any sort of process in the two years that I've been on the commission. So, um, you know, I, I feel like we, we have a voice and, you know, I think the one challenge that I find sometimes is um, at what point we, we actually, you know, talk more regularly to the athletes to get specific feedback, you know, like sometimes there's a balance with that because sometimes it's little things that, uh, you know we don't necessarily need to go and poll a dozen athletes for feedback on but then there's bigger issues that we have to go and sort of talk to the some of the athletes and, and get their actual voice and and feedback to see what they say so that that can be a tricky balance sometimes i find but other than that i i really do feel like the wcf has been very good at listening and fortunately we also have um a couple of uh, players or former players that are on the WCF board and I think have been very big advocates about including the athlete commission in, uh in various things.
2: Yeah. And it, Cause it does seem so complicated, right? Cause you have the, the national member associations, then you have the WCF and then all of this is also happening under the umbrella of the international Olympic committee as well. Uh, now, certainly, the International Olympic Committee does seem pretty good about letting sports govern themselves, but, you know, how much is the WCF and, and what you're doing there almost at the mercy of whatever the International Olympic Committee decides in, in terms of even whether or not there is going to be an Olympics in
3: 2022? Yeah, and that that's uh, not something that our Athlete Commission has had to talk a whole lot about yet. I, I think that just through some of our discussions about just this upcoming season, we're already seeing obviously and talking about the Beijing Olympics and how is this going to affect the Beijing Olympics? And I mean, the IOC still has the Tokyo Olympics to, to proceed with before, before we can even get to Beijing. Right. So, I mean, there's just so much to, to sort of think about. And I, I think at this point, um, you know, like the IOC usually has some, you know, feedback on how our member associations are, are qualified for the Olympic Games. But I think right now it's just so many sports are so different and, and we're, still, we're still waiting a little bit. Like there's still a bit of wait and see going on as to what we can actually accomplish before 2022, right? Yeah. Um, because right now it's hard to accomplish anything. Uh, that would contribute to that. So I, I think the IOC is probably waiting. And I think that, you know, WCF is probably waiting. I know that we're, we're, there's lots of ideas being, we're throwing around lots of ideas about, well, what if this, what if that, what if this, you know, but it's like to, to think about trying to prepare for that two years from now uh, is much more challenging because it's all going to depend on what can be accomplished in the next year. So uh, it's just it's just mind boggling to me to think about it when you start talking about all these things. So, uh, you know, I think the IOC right now is is just kind of saying, you know, try to have some options, figure out how to qualify teams and member associations. And, you know, obviously things will change over time.
2: And, And it's also fluid, too, right? Like the Curling Canada guidelines for return to play came out last week, and that feels like three months ago somehow. Uh, just in how things have changed, right? We live in Ontario yeah. and, and just announced stage three yesterday. So that changes again, the arithmetic of what a curling club can do in terms of how many people can be in the building and, and what you can do. And so much of those return to play guidelines are down to local, the, the local reality in terms of, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to like bar sales and that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. you're, you're right that the fluidity of this situation makes it really hard to look out, forget, you know, even world championships next year of of what's going to happen in two months when clubs start to open.
3: Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and I mean, thing, yeah, things change so, so quickly it seems because it all depends on how the reopenings go in different places. So, you know, in Southern Ontario, when you're talking about the, the events that are held at the Oakville Curling Club or, or, and you know what, even any of the local curling clubs, what, like how many people are they allowed to have in the building? How do they enforce the social distancing? How does that impact their ticket sales and what they actually make off of bar sales? Like it just, you know, you get down to the nitty gritty of it and and it's just mind boggling.
2: Yeah. Uh, Now I want to get you out of here on something a little more fun. Uh, You mentioned the uh, combination of amateur and pro sports and uh, some of our listeners have talked about the possibility that if elite level competitions are canceled, you might see some pro players at the club level. And I, as someone who has been the recipient of significant beatdowns by people like Pierre Charette <laughs> and Jen Hanna uh, here here in Ottawa, I'm curious to know what it's like on the other side. As an elite player, when you go to a club and you have the opportunity to play against club players, what is that experience like you because i know what it feels like to be on the receiving end of it but as an elite player yourself you go to a club what is the experience like
3: um you know what i have a couple of things that first come to mind uh uh I, I, you know over the years and i and i think especially just as our as you know me being part of team jones and our image grew and then we won the olympics it was so many teams just loved having the, having the opportunity to play against us Uh, you know, and, uh, so if we went and played in a, in a, in a club event or, uh, something like that, I, I, so many, or even like younger teams, they just loved having that opportunity. And so, you know, they would take pictures with us after the game and things like that. So I thought, I always thought that that was like kind of cool to be able to provide that excitement for, because I know when I was younger and I was in juniors, I thought it was really cool that I got to play against Sandra Schmerler. And I would come home, and I'd be like, oh, my gosh, our team played against Sandra Schmirler. And, you know, it was an exciting, inspiring moment. And so I think we were able to maybe give that to, uh, you know, some club teams or, or younger junior teams. Um, the other thing that I find is sometimes with those teams, they are sneaky good. <laughs> like, sometimes we've had to be, like, on guard almost because – they get excited about playing against Team Jones, right? And so it provides them this motivation and inspiration to play the best that they've ever played in their entire lives. So, you know, uh, I mean, there's I, I can think of one team. Uh, they were a junior team. We didn't know we had never heard of them before, but they were a Swedish junior team. Now they've been on the tour and in a couple of Grand Slams. But this is uh, Isabella Rana's team. And years ago, we played them in the Stockholm Ladies event. They literally played, each one of them, literally played 105%. They smoked (laughs) us. They absolutely smoked us. We'd never heard of them before. Didn't know, like, didn't really know who they were. And they just wiped us up and down the sheet. And that was an exciting thing for them. But they were sneaky good. It's like we almost weren't prepared for it so those are my two things is is you know you kind of got to watch out for those club <laughs> teams
2: <laughs> Yeah, because i mean if you lose to one you know that's that's all that team's talking about probably for, for the rest of their curling lives after every game 100%. at the bar that is the story they're telling
3: oh 100 and i mean we used to have the the big mca mca Bonspiel here in manitoba and that was a classic example of club teams playing against the jeff stoutens the vic peters the carrie burtnicks of the world right and i still hear stories from people saying oh yeah i played in the mce Bonspiel spiel 15 years ago and you know our first game who do we come up against but jeff stouten and they had just won the worlds and you know, <laughs> like like these stories and people remember it for which i think is awesome like it's a it's something that you know the elite players get to provide that sort of experience for people to go and talk about i think it's great
2: yeah and it's something we'll Likely to see a little more of this year as, as events continue to get canceled and, and local spiels become maybe more of a fixture on these schedules.
3: Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, I, I think I've heard some comments like that already where it's almost going back to the roots a little bit. So it'll be interesting to see how curling comes out of, out of this and what sort of changes we see even five years down the road.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Jill Officer, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today and giving us your insights on uh, everything going on in the sport. So thank you very much.
3: Yeah, you bet, guys. Thanks for having me.
2: All right. So there's Jill Officer. And again, we thank her for taking the time to join us on the show. Scott, what do you think?
0: Yeah, Sean, that was such an interesting conversation that I, I, I was listening along and just sort of I felt like a listener, really, because every question that popped into my mind, you uh, were able to ask. It was like uh, it was like we were sort of simpatic <laughs> in our heads, right? Uh, so I didn't feel the need to jump in and break up the flow. That was a really great uh, conversation with Jill, uh, who's a really great communicator herself. So uh, lots and lots of interesting stuff there.
2: Yeah, I think the thing that stands out to me, and, and it's certainly what we've talked about at the club level too, is just the uncertainty right now uh, around the events, mm-hmm. the logistics of getting people together, of, of what the sport's going to look like in the fall. And I don't know if it's comforting that it's not just us at the club level who are thinking about this, that the, the uncertainty, it's, un, it's sort of a sport-wide uncertainty, right? Which you can't say at the same level of, I think Jill made a really good point of the combination that curling is a, a pro and an amateur sport, and the distinction between the two isn't all that clear. Because, mm-hmm. you know, professional baseball versus what's going on, in little leagues, like the distinction couldn't be greater. Uh, and similar with hockey, you know, amateur hockey versus uh, professional hockey, you just don't have that same separation here because the questions that we're asking at the club level that we talked about last week with Curling Geek, people at that elite level are asking those same questions, and the uncertainty is the same across the sport, it seems.
0: Yeah, and uh, sort of, sort of like she was saying the professional sports in how we know them, the big four, they have so much money that's on the line to be made that the risks can be a little more justified as opposed to a case like a sport, like curling, where the money to be made isn't so great that the risks are worth it for a lot of the teams. Right. So we, you know, we've seen a lot of baseball players opting out that are guys who have made a bunch of money already that have, are set for life and probably their kids' lives and their grandkids' lives. But, you know, we're not going to see that in the world of curling, so it's all the more important that the safety measures be as strict as possible and follow public health guidelines because if we want athletes to get back on the ice, we can't take the risk of them uh, getting sick and not being able to perform going forward.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It would really be unfortunate if an athlete were at an event and you had to withdraw because they were sick and, and then that had a, a longer term impact beyond just the health. Mm-hmm. Like we would hope obviously that they would recover and, and not have any long-term health effects of that. But, you know, if you, you go to an event and you have to take a couple weeks off work on the the, the back end of it because you've contracted something that has real world effects for these players who need to work uh, you know you need that source mm-hmm. of income so uh, yeah just a lot of factors to take into account there so uh, very happy that uh, Joe was able to join us and Scott this discussion these issues are so complicated that uh, we felt uh, we, we we had to double up on the guests
0: yeah uh, like you say you and I we're not experts, and we don't want to pretend to be on the radio or uh, the podcast. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we, we reached out to somebody else who's got a lot of experience on sort of the business side of running a team, and that's Kirk Myers, who basically ran the social media for his, his team, Myers, the last couple of years and uh, has has been sort of the, the quote-unquote team manager
2: yeah, so a, a lot of experience in the business side of creating deals with sponsors and uh, you know promoting the, the team outside of just the events. So uh, Kirk Myers was able to join us from Regina. And Kirk Myers joins us now out in Regina. Kirk, how are you doing today?
0: Pretty good.
1: It's uh, It's been a decent day here in Regina. It's just starting to rain now, so hopefully we can get outside tonight and, and not have too much rain on us, but we'll see.
2: So uh, before we get into the curling side of it, uh, just how how are you doing? How's everyone doing out there? Uh, is everyone safe? Doing well amongst all this?
1: Yeah, you know it's been it's been as you guys may or may not know, but yeah, Saskatchewan's done pretty well so far. It's it hasn't been crazy with uh, with a lot of COVID cases, so that's been nice. We've been able to open up uh, pretty reasonably well, and. Uh, You know, the family and everybody on my side has been healthy. So, yeah, it's been it's been nice. And and I normally work from home anyway, so that hasn't changed a whole bunch. So all in all, things have been things have been good in Regina.
2: Good. Uh, Yeah, actually, I I, I work with somebody who works at home and she was saying that for the first month or so, she was actually seeing people more uh, because we all shifted to Zoom calls (laughs) and stuff. And so she was seeing people's faces way more than she normally was.
1: Yeah, I know. That's exactly it. And the, the only difference for me is my partner now works downstairs, too. So um, I don't have free reign of the house like I used to. That's another <laughs> tough, uh, tough thing for me.
2: Um, so let's get into the curling side. I, I saw you did an interview this week with uh, CTV and you seemed pretty optimistic that events could take place in the return to curling guidelines with the, that Curling Canada put out. So where does that optimism come from for you, and why do you think curling is well-positioned to play in the fall?
1: Yeah, you know, I think, I think it's a matter of, uh, you know, a, a few things. I think, uh, one, in terms of how much you can distance on the ice, which is really nice. Um, two, until about a week ago, I thought uh, um, the, uh, the high-performance events were going to run um, just because it was such a, it's such a good TV product, and they get so many numbers on TV that they could run it on TV without fans and still make it, uh, you know, economically possible. Um, but I think the big one is the, the fact that you can be on that ice, you can distance, you don't need to really touch anybody, especially with the one sweeper, and you can touch your two rocks and that's it. So I thought kind of curling is pretty well positioned to kind of go ahead. And, uh, and then I thought the, the document that Curling Canada sent out really kind of did a good job of uh, kind of encompassing everything with curling too, in terms of, you know, finding ways to maybe have that uh, drink after the game. You know, and those sort of things, and get people in the, in the rink and enjoying kind of a, a semi normal experience again.
2: Now, you mentioned the one sweeper, and, you know, for you, going back now to the front end, uh, sort of changing position with the, the reshuffled lineup. How do you feel about going to one sweeper? Maybe as someone who has skipped for the past two years, you're in favor of it because maybe it means less sweeping. I, I don't know, but I'm just curious uh, what your, what your feeling is as someone who's planning on playing front end in the fall.
1: Well, we joked. I said, uh, Maddie and I said we were just going to hang out at the skips end and make the calls <laughs> together and make deuce sweep the whole time. But uh, I don't think that's going to pan out. But, you know, I, I honestly, I think on, on I, I have a tough time understanding it on the high performance end, um, and again, I get that it was a general it's a general return to curling guideline and it may not apply everywhere. And um, it was just a a way to kind of start the ball rolling. But in terms of us, it's it's interesting. We're going to be, you know, rooming together, presumably, if we can get back on the road, we're going to be driving in the same vehicles together for us to go sweep together. um, Probably doesn't really matter. So I kind of foresee that if we were to go back curling at kind of the elite level on tour, um, I could see us going back with two, two sweepers realistically. Um, If not, we'll have to adapt and kind of go from there. I think that'll be it'd it'd be quite interesting, actually, to see some of the um, elite teams figure out what's the best way to do it with only one sweeper. And that that would be kind of interesting and kind of neat for a season.
2: Yeah. Well, how much do you think it would affect the elite teams? Because certainly on hits, it seems to be the case where for the past couple of years, it's already been one sweeper anyway. So, you know, what percentage of shots would you say you would need two sweepers versus potentially a person sort of just shifting back and forth behind the rock?
1: Yeah, I, I, think, I, think, I think you kind of nailed it there too. It's, it is like, generally speaking, there is only one sweeper sweeping at any given time as it is now, but I think it's more like that, kind of that team dynamic and that communication that the, the fourth person brings, whether that's communication to the person calling line or that's communication to the other sweeper on, you know, deciding when and where to sweep and, and really positioning that rock well. So I think that's the biggest uh, the biggest effect you'd see. It, it's less on actually um, physically sweeping and more about that team dynamic and, and managing that shot into the proper place. So I see it making a pretty big difference if the, that fourth person can't be alongside on that rock. I, I don't think uh, teams will be as precise. I don't think uh, the communication is going to be as crisp. And I, I, I foresee the, the, you know, percentages going down.
0: And Kirk, for you, uh, joining a new team this year, uh, that communication is going to be pretty important as you guys make the push towards uh, the roar of the rings, right? Uh,
1: yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, that, that's going to be huge. I, luckily, um, I've said it a few other times, as I've played with all three of these guys before. So I, I, you know, we kind of have a pretty good sense of each other. We've been good friends for a long time. So we have a good sense of um, each other and what we do and and play against each other a ton. So we understand each other on Mm -hmm. the ice. So we've got a leg up on that side in terms of a new team. But um, that being said, yeah, the the communication thing and the team dynamic thing is going to be huge and I've really said it for a long time is that's really what makes a team great is their ability to communicate and help each other be a little bit better. And, uh, Mm -hmm. and that's something that we're really going to focus on. And and we already have, you know, in our zoom meetings uh, up to this point.
2: Now, I'm curious how far you guys got along in planning your fall schedule, which I realize has been in, in flux, but you know, Matt and the guys would have had their schedule from last year, and then you had the schedule that you played, which I know differed slightly. So how far along were you guys, or are you guys now, in trying to map out what you might be able to do in the fall?
1: Yeah, you know, and it's, yeah, like you said, it's been a moving target um, for us, but uh, we we are moving it along. Like, we do have a plan in place on what we want to do, and, and quite honestly, it was very, obviously, very disappointing when you heard the slams um, decided to postpone, and, and it, it makes total sense, and, and we get it for sure. But um, you always you always kind of cling on to hope that in a few months you might be back to some sort of normal. But, you know, honestly, when they did uh, postpone those events, it kind of gave us uh, a better sense of where we're at too because it, it kind of allowed us to know that those are out of the picture. We don't have to worry about them. They, they're not going to happen, and we can kind of plan from there. So um, we've kind of been moving that planning along in terms of playing, call it, in the West – being able to drive to most or all of our bond spiels, um, you know, and, and and hopefully be able to play a season in that respect. So the, the plan right now is to drive to most of our bond spiels before Christmas. Hopefully those bond spiels are able to play um, in a couple months' time. But but at this point, uh, as we all know, we're just kind of hoping and waiting.
2: Would you include the Canada Cup in that as a sort of one of those spiels that you're targeting as happening in, in the fall?
1: You know, we, we are hoping that still happens. I believe beginning of August is when they're kind of uh, the, the CC or Curling Canada is deciding on whether they're going to run the Canada Cup. Um, and so I think in August we'll have a better sense. We are kind of planning on, on still being able to play that event. I think it could be really tough to get out there. Um, well, obviously, there's not a lot of flights right now. Um, and going to New Brunswick isn't isn't the easiest from, from Regina at the best of times. So um, it might be hard to get out there. We are planning to play it. Um, but that being said, we'll have to wait and see, as well as we'll have to wait and see on kind of what, uh, um, how you qualify for it. You know, um, right. originally they had planned, I think, or like they did the last few years, is allow a couple of play-in spots. Well, that may or may not be possible this fall. So it, it'll, it's kind of all up in the air, but we are hoping to have a have a crack at that come, uh, I guess, November, December.
2: Yeah, we'll have a, an Atlantic bubble, Canada Cup. Gushu, Murphy, James Grattan. <laughs> I just saw those guys. <laughs> <That> would be...
1: <laughs> I'd watch that.
2: That would be fun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, now you mentioned the, the points and, and playing into the Canada Cup. When you guys are setting your schedule in a normal year, normal times, how do you pick your events? Like, how important are points versus cash versus size of the event and exposure? You know, when you're setting up the, the general schedule, what, what do you prioritize?
1: yeah that's a that's a good question it is generally i'm gonna say gonna gonna say points and then exposure and then money third of all and and the exposure is to ensure that our sponsors get the recognition that they need and deserve to stay on with us as as we kind of progress um points are kind of the end all be all so we can get into the slams get better um get the exposure needed for sponsors qualify for the roar of the rings all that stuff but uh, um and in, in a lot of cases, that, that's probably a discussion for another point. But I think it's kind of too bad that, that curlers do have to live in that world where, where they prioritize money third uh, among everything because we have to make sure we keep those points up. And, and there's just not, as we all know, there's not a lot of money in the game yet to be able to play for a living. But I think uh, if we want to be able to develop a truly pro tour where maybe 100, 200 athletes can make a living at the game, um, we have to figure out a way to uh, focus more on the money aspect for, you know, the up and coming players and the players that are already seasoned. But um, that, that's probably a discussion for another day.
2: Well, and, and sort of staying on the theme, though, of money this year for you guys w- would have been interesting because based on where the team finished last year, the expectation at least on our end would have been that you guys would have been in every grand slam, you know, no more having to deal with tier twos and stuff like, you know, you're that, the team is at that level at this point. So how does the discussion change with sponsors year to year when you were expecting to have perhaps a lot more TV exposure this year and now potentially, at least in the fall, maybe none. Like what, what is the relationship in the discussion with sponsors when you're trying to get that money and then the massive exposure of the slams goes away.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and we're working through that right now. Luckily, we've had some have some really good relationships that we've worked on for a lot of years on the sponsor front, and and we have some great great people and uh, really supporting us. So I, I don't foresee that changing, you know, necessarily for the long term, which we're very very lucky for. But it, it is a it's a tough situation. Um, um, to to some degree, people are supporting you to help the cause. You know, they want to support. Uh, support our team and support what we're doing but at the same time they, they need to get some t- sort of return on investment and, and like you said that a big piece of that was you know being on tv during the grand slams that's huge exposure that isn't you no know, isn't there anymore so those discussions are still happening since you know this announcement came out last week on how we're going to deal with that um we're looking at different avenues on on getting some sort of uh exposure whether it be streaming or or some sort of television networks uh working on it as well. But I mean, it's all very, very um, up in the air yet and very early in the process because we do want to really ensure that our sponsors know that we're doing all we can to, to um, continue to keep them along because um, as everyone knows listening, that's uh, um, without that, people like us could never, ever begin to get on a plane every weekend or drive anywhere and stay in hotels and play.
2: Now, in, in general terms, have you noticed a difference between you know, back when you played with Laycock, to when you were skipping your team, and now with with Dunstone and the guys, just in terms of the the how hard it is to get sponsors, has it changed over the years?
1: Um, that's a really good question. You know, I think from from my perspective, it's 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 been similar um, for us in Saskatchewan. You know, curling is. Um, really close to a lot of a lot of people's hearts, and and we've been kind of that team that gets to go to the Briar every year. That is really um, huge exposure, and and you know we've been lucky over the last since I've been with Laycock, and then skipping my own team, and now with Dunstone, we've we've kind of been the team that people see at the Briar. So that's really helped, but um, it, it's it's a, it's a lot of work, and it's it's been a lot of work from day one. Um, people you know may or may not realize, but uh, it's a sales position where <laughs> I, I cold call businesses almost. Uh, uh, every week I, I would say I'm um, two or three um, businesses a week. I cold call one out of a hundred may turn into something sort of thing. And, and it, it's a grind, but at the same time, when you kind of treat it like a business, it is a business. Uh, um, it's, it's, it's just one of the things you do on your day to day. And then, um, when you do get that sponsor, cause you've treated it like a business, you know how to, you know, nurture that relationship, work that relationship along, become friends, but also find areas that you can market their business and kind of be like another marketing arm for them. And I think that's kind of what I how I've always positioned it in my head. And uh, and it, it it's a grind, but uh, at the same time, we're lucky to be able to have the opportunity to do it.
0: Yeah, yeah, Kirk. Another question about sponsors is, uh, you know, that you're you've changed teams now to a new team. How much of the sponsor relationship sort of have you been able to bring into your new team? And then how much of the overall sort of liaison role uh, do you take care of? on the new team. Cause I, I know on your old team, you were kind of the CEO, I guess, of the team running, <laughs> running everything. <laughs> mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Uh, wondering how that's changed.
1: Yeah. You know um, we've been, you know, I've, I've been lucky to hold on to a lot of the relationships and the sponsorships we've had in the past uh, and on the past teams kind of over to this new team. And, and really, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, the goal has always been to win the briar for saskatchewan and and you know whether that was with laycock or whether that was skipping my own team and now dunstone that really hasn't changed so um the people that were supporting us and supporting our, our previous teams are, are now seeing that as well with dunstone as, a, as you know a possibility in the next few years so um been lucky to be able to hold on to that and then and then really continue that like you said that liaison um on the sponsorships and those relationships so um, you know, everyone in our, in our team has their own relationships and their own sponsorships, and, and they still manage those relationships. I manage my own. But um, with this team, I'm looking to take on more of a role of, um, like you said, liaison of all the, all the sponsorship relationships, kind of push them along. Um, I have a you know a big Excel sheet that I work on every year and making sure that we do the certain things for every sponsor, different things for each sponsor, um, just to kind of keep them happy with the with the product that we're we're, we're giving them really. So um, I'm going to continue that on the new team and uh, and then uh, uh, kind of go from there. But uh, it's been it's been one of those things like, like any new team, even on the ice, we're going to work through different things on this team. We're working through what our roles are as well. Just like we do on the Mm -hmm. ice on the business side, we're working through those roles as well. But uh, um, so far it's been just a dream working with, uh, with these three guys.
0: Good stuff. Good stuff. I want to shift gears a little bit and ask you about mixed doubles and uh, how has your mixed doubles sort of responsibilities shifted and changed with, both Laura's pregnancy and uh, your shift to a new four-person team. Yeah,
1: you know, and it's been uh, it's been a conversation for sure. I think uh, for you know a few months in the fall, Laura and I. Pro- uh, obviously, Laura will not be playing. You know, she's she's kind of in the in the middle of her of her pregnancy right now and and kind of getting through it. So, um, you know, we we fully intend to continue to play together realistically that's probably looking like christmas into the new year which with COVID might be the reality for everybody um but uh, the, the plan was to kind of put the, the team on hold until the new year um i may pick up a couple couple mixed double spiels if time permits um with with another player i haven't really um, thought about or discussed that with anyone um in the fall and then uh really it, it's a lot similar to the teams prior is is the men's and women's teams kind of take uh Take priority. And once that's taken care of, uh, filling in the, the mixed double slots and, uh, um, that, that's kind of the reality now for the next little while. Um, I, I can see that changing for myself, maybe even in, in the future in the next, you know, three, four five years, as well as other players. I think there's going to be so many opportunities in mixed doubles. Um, and it's fun. Mm-hmm. And there, I think that that part of the game is really going to grow. So it'll be interesting to see if some players kind of, you know, be, that becomes a priority the mixed double side versus uh, the men's and women's side. But right now it's, it's, uh, it's definitely taking a second fiddle to, uh, to the men's and women's.
2: Now you've mentioned the financial relationships and, and players managing their, their financial relationships. How do you, how do you compare, the financial relationships that are built surrounding the four-person team versus the mixed doubles team, because uh, obviously you've had a lot of success with Laura playing in that mixed doubles side. So when you're approaching sponsors, is it a holistic approach, or do you say we'll put you on this shirt or, or promote you in this way? Like, I'm just curious how that relationship is managed across the two teams.
1: Yeah, for sure, and and that's uh that that was kind of an interesting thing as it's progressed, and um there there's I guess there's a couple things there is. The, the problem when you are approaching uh, sponsors is is what are you selling them? Are you selling them mixed doubles? Or are you selling them men's for myself? Um, you know, we used to have it I, when I used to sit on the board with the, the Saskatchewan curling tour. We were part of the Saskatchewan Curling Players Association. We always wanted to find a, uh, a sponsor for the tour. And, and we could mm-hmm. then support, um, you know, some of the teams and, and money and those sort of things on, this, on the Saskatchewan curling tour. But the problem was everyone on the board had their own teams. And you always wanted to make sure you could fund your own teams instead of the tour. And and so we never really got anywhere because, of course, everyone's going to sponsor the teams before the tour. And, and so that kind of went into the mixed doubles side is is how can you kind of differentiate the two? So what I did a couple of years ago, I talked to Laura and, and we kind of said, you know what, hey, this is this is what we're going to do. And I talked to my sponsors and, and my men's team and the relationships. And, and we just said, if you're sponsoring – Kirk's men's team you're sponsoring Kirk's mixed doubles team and then you get the whole kind of the whole shoot and match and and so it's kind of been like like you said a whole a holistic approach just it's kind of all-encompassing and then and then from whoever's managing those sponsorships too you don't have to necessarily um pick sides or pick what you're going to focus on today it's all just these are your relationships these are our sponsorships how can we best promote them um you know to the world
2: so, I'm curious about the financial sustainability of it. You mentioned potentially focusing a little more on mixed doubles in the years to come. And do you think a lot of players were going to have to do this, not only just because of the time it takes to try to do both, but financially, maybe it's easier to sustain yourself only doing one of the two and really focusing in on that, both in personal finances, but also in the managing the relationships with sponsors?
1: Yeah, I think from a from a financial standpoint, it could make really good sense. Uh, like you said, time is time is is really the tough part now, right? You, you, you're playing, you know, 16, 17 weekends a year with your men's team and then adding three or four with your mixed doubles team. Like, it's just, it's a grind. But on the financial side, I think it could make some really good sense to play mixed doubles. I mean, you talk about half of the cost to fly, um, half of the cost of rooms. You, you just play a room with another team, those sort of things. So the cost could be a lot less. And um, the sponsor relationships could stay in place. Um, But I think for that to happen, there needs to be some more exposure for the mixed doubles teams on national television. I mean, no matter how much you sell it, a big part of us going to sponsors is the possibility that they they may see their logo on national television. I don't believe that's all of it. And I don't believe that is, you know, the whole reason um, companies sponsor us. But that's a really nice that's a really nice perk. So if, if mixed doubles could create some sort of professional tour or, or elite tour that was on CBC, you know, five or six weekends a year, I think financially it may make way more sense to do that than it is to play on, on the men's and women's side if we're talking just strictly on, from a dollars and cents standpoint. But until that happens, I think it'll be tough to bring in the sponsorship dollars that, that some of the men's and women's teams do have at the elite level right now.
2: Do you think it'd be easier as well for you to get sponsorships and to sustain relationships if curling Canada allowed you to wear your tour jerseys uh, at the briar
1: oh. oh absolutely and we talk about this a lot so um I don't know if you guys ever discussed this at all but you know for for, for sure like teams like Cooey and Jones it would be great if they could wear their sponsorship um gear at the briar and the scotties like no doubt about it that would be great for them but the way i see it it's great for the fringe teams so even even like our team that didn't have a great season last year um, or the last two years we didn't get a lot of exposure on tv so if we could get also just get to the briar and then be able to wear our sponsorship logos that is huge for the fringe teams to be able to fund their following season Um, you take teams like party for example who's just coming up If Tardy can go to a sponsor and tell them, well, there's a good chance we get to the Briar this year, and if we get to the Briar, your logo will be on TV, Uh, boom. Their their season's probably funded at that point. But right now, you know, for Tardy, he's he's not quite at that slam level yet. It won't be long for him, but it's it's a few years away. So I think the biggest thing for Tardy, People, to, teams to be able to wear their logos at the Briar and the Scotties isn't necessarily for the elite teams. It's those teams that are coming up, those fringe teams that are trying to break through and don't have the funds to travel and compete and get better. And I, I just think something needs to change there on the on the you know the the relationship between Curling Canada, their sponsors, and the teams in the very new future. Otherwise, a lot of the fringe teams that are coming up are just not going to be able to compete and play and get better. And and Canada may not have that next crop of, of players coming up.
2: It's interesting, right? Because Hodgson and, and Dynasty have done such a good job with the designs of the jerseys. But, yeah, the financial reality of of this, I think, is really important because we talk a lot. And I know has been open about this, on certainly on Twitter, about that middle class of, of player that, you know, better than a club team, wants to travel and play a little bit, but financially it's so hard. And especially, yeah, I think, you know, those provinces – that maybe aren't super competitive right now when they get to a national championship, if they can generate more revenue by having sponsors visible at the national championship, that could really be a game changer for some of those smaller provinces.
1: Yeah, I I agree. And and we talk about the, um, the brand power that the Scotties and the Briar have in our country. I mean, I don't think you in Saskatchewan anyways, but I, I, I think most places, I don't think you walk into many businesses and they wouldn't understand or get, the magnitude of what the Scotties and the Briar is. And I just think it holds such a big weight. And and I, I just think something needs to be addressed there in the near future to really help those, call it those middle class or those fringe teams that are coming up. I really, really do. Uh,
2: now, I want to get you out of here on something more positive, more fun. So what do you think will be a, a bigger deal and cause a bigger celebration in the province of Saskatchewan? You guys winning a Briar or are you guys winning the trials in Saskatoon?
1: Oh man, both of those give me goosebumps. Both of those <laughs> give me goosebumps. You know, over the last probably ten years, I always said the Briar would be the biggest. Like that would be the 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 end all and be all in the province. Like it's been everyone knows whatever everyone in Saskatchewan they do anyways. Forty years now, um, so that would be unbelievable. But I think as the um, you know the the Olympics kind of creates a bigger allure, and then the fact that it's in Saskatoon. Um, I would say probably winning the trials in Saskatoon. Nope. I'm going to go with the Briar. I'm going to say winning the Briar for the first time in 41, 42, 43 years in Saskatchewan would hold the biggest weight. I think that would be just so neat to be a part of a group that could do that. Um, And again, just because it's been so long and everyone's discussed it forever and, and you're playing for Saskatchewan, you know, at the trials, as much as anything, you're kind of still playing for yourself, your own name, but at the Briar, it's Saskatchewan's team that won the Briar. So I think, um i think that would be just a wild celebration in the province for a long time and oh it'd be so cool to be a part of that
2: if the if a briar was held in regina or saskatoon or even moose jaw or wherever else i think those are the only three cities though that would legitimately have a chance to host a briar in the province would it how do you think it would compare to when it was in st john's with guju for the playoffs you know if you guys were in it you're right there championship game it's you against whoever like comparing that yep. to what you saw in St. John's with Gushu.
1: Yeah, that that's a really I never thought about that actually. It seems I, I wasn't at that prior. Uh thanks for reminding me guys. <laughs> I we lost the final to Casey that year but uh but it looked wild. It looked unbelievable. And and I the 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 St. John's people uh and and Newfoundland people they needed something to cheer for. So they came out in full force and cheered and um, you know I think it would be hard to compete with that. I'd like to think the Saskatchewan people could and I think it would be a rowdy rowdy crowd but Saskatchewan they can go cheer for the riders all summer and and into the fall so I think they, they've kind they kind of going to get their fair share of cheering. so I, I don't know if it would be quite as crazy as St John's in 2017 with Gushu, but I think we would uh, we would probably make a make a run for it and kind of we'd have a little competition there but I think probably St John's would take it by a bit just, because they don't have that uh, that big professional sports team to cheer for like we do, but um, I'd like to think it would be oh it'd be wild it would be a wild <laughs> show to have a have a uh, Brier final in Regina or Saskatoon with Saskatchewan playing.
0: Yeah, that'd be, uh, that'd be real fun. Hey? I, I think we'd have to make uh, make a point to get there, Sean.
2: Yeah, I, that would definitely be worth it. You know, I, I lived in Regina for a couple of years and I was there when the Scotty's was there, and. Uh, Yeah, when Saskatchewan's on the ice at a Saskatchewan event, a Saskatchewan based event, there's nothing quite like it that I've experienced in the sport.
1: Oh, you're totally right. I've said it and I I, quite honestly, I I just mean it when, you know, even playing a Grand Slam here or I was lucky we played the uh, 2018 Briar here with Maddie actually, when I was playing with Laycock yet. And um, oh, that was just so much fun. Like, you know, the people just hang on your every move. You know, if, if you walk a little higher, the crowd walks a little higher. And if you walk a little lower, I remember a few shots Maddie came off the wall and made, you know, crosstown doubles and the crowd goes nuts and your heart just starts <laughs> pounding. And Or if you miss a shot and the heart, the, the, you know, seven, eight thousand people go, ooh, your heart sinks with them. And it doesn't matter what's happening on the other three sheets. So it is it is one of the coolest experiences you could ever imagine as a curler and I'm sure an athlete.
2: Yeah, the silence can be deafening from a Saskatchewan crowd. That's uh, that's for sure. <laughs>
1: yes, exactly.
2: <laughs> All right, so Kirk Myers, thank you so much. Good luck this season. Hopefully there's events to play in and uh, we'll certainly be watching. Thanks for taking the time to join us today.
1: Awesome. I appreciate you guys having me. You have a good evening.
2: So there you have it, our conversation with Kirk Myers. We, sort of, of course, thank him for joining us. Scott, a lot of uh, interesting stuff there. A, a couple of things that I was a little surprised by in terms of how they manage the, the sponsor relationships on, on a more individual basis than I would have expected, but some great information about how those elite teams manage themselves.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's good stuff. Uh, I guess, Sean, that means you and I each have to come up with our own sponsors for the podcast. That's right. Yeah. I was, I was kind of like hoping you would do everything, but uh, if I'm going to pull my weight, dibs on to... dibs on Fergus curling club. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we don't want to leave out the great Fergus curling club uh, ever, ever. But uh, no, like lots of good stuff there from Kirk. Uh, I was I was especially interested in the mixed doubles aspect of things. And knowing how much uh, like mixed doubles doesn't get the exposure that the four-team version does. Uh, the way he said, you know, if if we can get a mixed doubles tour, that kind of thing then players could probably take the time and focus on mixed doubles alone. Right. You know, not everybody's the tux and has uh, Canada Curling Stone, uh, the power of Canada, <laughs> Canada Curling Stone behind them. But uh, because right now I think for a lot of these teams, playing the four-person game is necessary financially to be able to fund some of the mixed double stuff. So uh, we'll see how that changes uh In the following few years
2: yeah and i wonder too how just visually people would react to an event in a curling club i think on tv we're just so used to seeing the one house the carpet and maybe a little bit of the the side sheet you know you could have a mixed doubles event running out of a curling club that wouldn't cost nearly as much as as renting out an arena and have all a bunch of teams churn through and, and it'd be relatively easy compared to uh, an arena to put on that event and i i just wonder if the tv audience how that would would jive with the tv audience because it would create a very different visual to what we're used to in watching curling on tv and it would create a different soundscape and you know we talked of course with andrew stokely earlier in the spring about mixing for curling so it might sound a little different on TV too, but in, in terms of getting it on TV, there's enough mixed double spiels that good teams go to across the country that, yeah, if CBC or somebody else wanted to set up a camera and uh, a couple cameras to do it, maybe it could be financially viable.
0: Yeah, and it might not even be somebody like CBC. It could be uh, some sort of company like TESN in the States who have Yeah. Uh, Sort of figured out how to set clubs up with their own cameras and equipment and then uh, sort of have the feed and try to sell the feed to maybe a broadcaster.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Because the streams do okay, but I don't think they do okay to be financially viable at this point.
0: At this point, Sean. But, uh, you know, everybody's working at home now. We're uh, we're all getting our Internet speeds as high as possible. That's true. So, uh, you know, times are changing.
2: Yeah. And, and you know, the stream in Saskatchewan for the men's and women's finals, or the excuse me, the entire provincials, I think yeah. that one does really well. They do have sponsors for it. But, again, it is Saskatchewan. So uh,
0: Yeah. You know. And, I mean, we're not your typical audience because we do watch all the streams that we can.
2: Yeah. And that one is by far the best. Uh, no question about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, that'll do it for this week. But before we go, Scott, we wanted to update what's been going on with the T-shirts, the Game of Stone T-shirt, which we launched, I don't know, a month ago, longer ago. Time has no meaning. At some point over the past (laughs) couple months, uh, we had our Game of Stones T-shirts that were available for sale and we said that all the proceeds from those shirts would be donated to Food Banks Canada and we would match the donation. So Scott, where are we with the t-shirt donation?
0: So we had a couple of problems with school or, uh, no, not that. We had a couple of problems with Teespring, uh, so that the shirt went up twice. Uh, it's come down since I'm working on trying to find a more permanent home for these shirts uh, so that we can continue raising money. But uh, this weekend I, I made a donation on behalf of Game of Stones in the amount of $250 to uh, Canada food banks.
2: Yeah, so we didn't have as long of the shirt being live to purchase as we would have liked. Again, as Scott alluded to with the problems with the Teespring, the site. So we are looking to shift the the host and the manufacturer for the shirt to a Canadian-based company, hopefully. Uh, so that's in the midst. And we will continue, once it's live, we'll, we'll tweet it out. We'll certainly talk about it on the show. And we will continue to, to donate all proceeds and match to Food Banks Canada once it gets back up. So thank you to everybody for who, who purchased it. We've seen people have tagged us and, and sent us images of them. Seems like the gray one was a popular choice, Scott.
0: The gray one was a real popular choice. I think there was one red one. That might have been purchased by our mom, um, <laughs> but but you and I are both interested in the red ones, too. So yeah. uh, we're going to yeah look at getting those back up and, like, and like you say, from a Canadian company so we can keep uh, a little more of the production in Canada and keep the shipping costs down.
2: Yeah, because I think the majority of them were sold uh, to a Canadian audience. Shout out to uh, Jonathan from Rocks Across the Pond. He had his shipped uh, across the pond.
0: Oh, yes, I think his was red. Now oh, I'm maybe. Of
2: it. Yeah. So, uh, so thanks, everybody, for the support with that uh, and, and working towards getting that donation to Food Banks Canada. We will, as I said, once it's back up live, continue to donate all the proceeds and match uh, as we move forward with the T-shirts. But just wanted to give a quick update about that. So, uh, so thanks again. And, Scott, thank you for setting up all the technical side of the T-shirts.
0: Hey, uh, no problem the no no problem i'll keep working on it no problem as except long as uh we still <laughs> no problem except for all the problems we had with it <laughs> hey you know what uh with sponsors like the fergus curling club we're going to be <laughs> able to keep trucking along and uh, i'm going to be able to keep doing my work so yeah, so we'll, 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 yeah, we'll get it back live and
2: it'll, it'll be going full force uh, once we get back into curling season and, and hopefully we can generate some interest uh, in, in making those donations to Food Banks Canada. So that'll do it for this week's episode. Thank you to Jill Officer and Kirk Myers for joining us this week. Thank you to everybody out there for listening. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, uh, Google, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, all the places. Based on what I've seen, Scott, all
0: of our Google problems have been resolved. Yeah, yeah, we're uh, doing a lot of work on the back end of the, of the show to try, to try and uh, make sure we don't have any of those problems again. So, uh, yeah, it looks good, and everybody's getting the show, and we appreciate everyone listening.
2: Yeah. So, so if fun. you've if you've suffered through uh, the Google issue that we've had for two years, <laughs> we apologize. It seems to be resolved. Hopefully that, that remains the case. Uh, but, you know, let us know if it's not. Uh, and please do subscribe wherever it is you get your shows. And if you would like to follow along with everything going on on social media, we continue to update as new information comes out about Return to Curl and event cancellations. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Game of Stones Pod. And you can always email the show if you have ideas or questions, Game of Stones Podcast at Gmail. Dot com. So that'll do it for this week. We'll be back with you again next week. But until then, keep your brooms on the ice and don't dump that insert.